Section 5 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 4, 1547-1549, Part 1. The death of Henry VIII, which took place on January 28, 1547, opened a new and busy scene, and affected in several important points the situation of Elizabeth. The testament by which the Parliament had empowered the King to regulate the government of the country during his son's minority, and even to settle the order of succession itself, with as full authority as the distribution of his private property, was the first object of attention, and its provisions were found strongly characteristic of the temper and maxims of its author. He confirmed the act of Parliament by which his two daughters had been rendered capable of inheriting the crown, and appointed to each of them a pension of three thousand pounds, with a marriage portion of ten thousand pounds, but annexed the condition of their marrying with the consent of such of his executors as should be living. After them he placed in order of succession Frances, Marchioness of Dorset, and Eleanor, Countess of Cumberland, daughters of his younger sister, the Queen Dowager of France, by Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, and failing the descendants of these ladies, he bequeathed the crown to the next heir. By this disposition he either totally excluded, or at least removed from their rightful place, his eldest and still surviving sister, the Queen Dowager of Scotland, and all her issue. A most absurd and dangerous indulgence of his feelings of enmity against the Scottish line, which might eventually have involved the nation in all the horrors of a civil war, and from which, in fact, the whole calamitous destinies of the House of Suffolk, which the progress of this work will record, and in some measure also the long misfortunes of the Queen of Scots herself, will be found to draw their origin. Sixteen executors named in the will were to exercise in common the royal functions till young Edward should attain the age of eighteen, and to these twelve others were added as a council of regency, invested, however, with no other privilege than that of giving their opinions when called upon. The selection of the executors and councillors was in perfect unison with the policy of the Tudors. The great officers of state formed of necessity a considerable portion of the former body, and four of these, Lord Risley, the Chancellor, the Earl of Hertford, Lord Chamberlain, Lord St. John, Master of the Household, and Lord Russell, Privy Seal, were decorated with the peerage. But with the exception of Sir John Dudley, who had lately acquired by marriage the rank of Viscount Lyle, these were the only titled men of the sixteen. Thus it appeared that not a single individual amongst the hereditary nobility of the country enjoyed in a sufficient degree the favour and confidence of the monarch to be associated in a charge which he had not hesitated to confer on persons of no higher importance than the principal gentlemen of the bedchamber, the treasurer of Calais, and the dean of Canterbury. Even the council reckoned among its members only two peers, one of them the brother of the Queen Dowager, on whom since the fall of Cromwell the title of Earl of Essex had at length been conferred in right of his wife the heiress of the Bowshers, the other the Earl of Arundel, Premier Earl of England, and last of the ancient name of Fitzalan, a distinguished nobleman, whom vast wealth, elegant tastes acquired in foreign travel, and a spirit of magnificence combined to render one of the principal ornaments of the court, while his political talents and experience of affairs qualified him to assume a leading station in the cabinet. The loyalty and prudence of the Fitzalans must have been conspicuous for ages, since no attainder, during so long a period of greatness, had stained the honour of the race and the moderation or subserviency of the present earl had been shown by his perfect acquiescence in all the measures of henry notwithstanding his private preference of the ancient faith to crown his merits his blood appears to have been unmingled with that of the plantagenets notwithstanding all this the king had thought fit to name him only a counsellor not an executor 
Arundel deeply felt the injury, and impatience of the insignificance to which he was thus consigned, joined to his disapprobation of the measures of the Regency with respect to religion, threw him into intrigues which contributed not a little to the turbulence of this disastrous period. It was doubtless the intention of Henry that the religion of the country, at least during the minority of his son, should be left vibrating on the same nice balance between Protestantism and Popery, by which it had cost him so much pains to fix it. And with a view to this object, he had originally composed the Regency with a pretty equal distribution of power between the adherents of the two communions. But the suspicion, or disgust, which afterwards caused him to erase the name of Gardiner from the list, destroyed the equipoise, and rendered the scale of reformation decidedly preponderant. In vain did Risley, a man of vigorous talents and aspiring mind, struggle with Hartford for the highest place in the administration. In vain did Tunstall, Bishop of Durham, no bigot but a firm papist, check with all the authority that he could venture to exert, the bold career of innovation on which he beheld Cranmer full of eagerness to enter. In vain did the Catholics invoke to their aid the act of interference of Dudley. He suffered them to imagine that his heart was with them, and that he watched an opportunity to interpose with effect in their behalf, whilst, in fact, he was only waiting till the fall of one of the Seymours by the hand of the other should enable him to crush the survivor, and rise to uncontrolled authority on the ruins of both. The first attempt of the Protestant party in the Regency showed their intentions, its success proved their strength, and silenced for the present all opposition. It was proposed, and carried by a majority of the executors, that the Earl of Hertford should be declared protector of the realm, and governor of the king's person. And the new dictator soon after procured the ratification of this appointment, which overturned some of the most important clauses of the late king's will by causing a patent to be drawn and sanctioned by the two houses which invested him, during the minority, with all the prerogatives ever assumed by the most arbitrary of the English sovereigns, and many more than were ever recognized by the Constitution. As if in compensation for any disrespect shown to the memory of the deceased monarch by these proceedings, the executors next declared their intention of fulfilling certain promises made by him in his last illness, and which death alone had prevented him from carrying into effect. On this plea they bestowed upon themselves and their adherents various titles of honour, and a number of valuable church preferments now first conferred upon laymen, the protector himself unblushingly assuming the title of Duke of Somerset, and taking possession of benefices and impropriations to a vast amount. Viscount Lyle was created Earl of Warwick, and Risley became Earl of Southampton, an empty dignity which afforded him little consolation for seeing himself soon after, on pretense of some irregular proceedings in his office, stripped of the post of Chancellor, deprived of his place amongst the other executors of the King, who now formed a privy council to the Protector, and consigned to obscurity and insignificance for the short remnant of his days. Sir Thomas Seymour ought to have been consoled by the share allotted him in this splendid distribution for the mortification of having been named a Councillor only, and not an executor. He was made Lord Seymour of Sudley, and soon after Lord High Admiral preferments greatly exceeding any expectations which his birth or his services to the state could properly authorize. But he measured his claims by his nearness to the king. He compared these inferior dignities with the state and power usurped by his brother, and his arrogant spirit disdained as a meanness the thought of resting satisfied or appeased. Circumstances soon arose which converted this general feeling of discontent in the mind of Thomas Seymour into a more rancorous spirit of envy and hostility against his brother and gradually involved him in a succession of dark intrigues, which on account of the embarrassments and dangers in which they eventually implicated the Princess Elizabeth, it will now become necessary to unravel. The younger Seymour, still in the prime of life, was endowed in a striking degree with those graces of person and manner which served to captivate the female heart, 
and his ambition had sought in consequence to avail itself of a splendid marriage. It is said that the Princess Mary herself was at first the object of his hopes or wishes, but if this were really the case, she must speedily have quelled his presumption by the lofty sternness of her repulse, for it is impossible to discover in the history of his life at what particular period he could have been occupied with such a design. Immediately after the death of Henry, he found means to revive with such energy in the bosom of the Queen Dowager, an attachment which she had entertained for him before her marriage with the King, that she consented to become his wife, with a precipitation highly indecorous and reprehensible. The connection proved unfortunate on both sides, and its first effect was to embroil him with his brother. The protector, of a temper still weaker than his not very vigorous understanding, had long allowed himself to be governed both in great and small concerns by his wife, a woman of little principle, and of a disposition in the highest degree violent, imperious, and insolent. Nothing could be more insupportable to the spirit of this lady, who prided herself on her descent from Thomas of Woodstock, and now saw her husband governing the kingdom with all the prerogatives and almost all the splendour of royalty, than to find herself compelled to yield precedency to the wife of his younger brother, and unable to submit patiently to a mortification from which, after all, there was no escape, she could not forbear engaging in continual disputes on the subject with the Queen Dowager. Their husbands were soon drawn in to take part in this senseless quarrel, and a serious difference ensued between them. The protector and council soon after refused to the Lord Admiral certain grants of land and valuable jewels which he claimed as bequests to his wife from the late King, and the perhaps real injury, thus added to the slights of which he before complained, gave fresh exasperation to the pride and turbulence of his character. Taking advantage of the protector's absence on that campaign in Scotland which ended with the victory of Pinkey, he formed partisans among the discontented nobles, won from his brother the affections of the young king, and believing everything ripe for an attack on his usurped authority, he designed to bring forward in the ensuing Parliament a proposal for separating, according to ancient precedent, the office of guardian of the king's person from that of protector of the realm, and for conferring upon himself the former. But he discovered too late that he had greatly miscalculated his forces. His proposal was not even permitted to come to a hearing. Having rendered himself further obnoxious to the vengeance of the administration by menaces thrown out in the rage of disappointment, he saw himself reduced, in order to escape a committal to the tower, to make submissions to his brother. An apparent reconciliation took place, and the admiral was compelled to change, but not to relinquish, his schemes of ambition. The Princess Elizabeth had been consigned on the death of her father to the protection and superintendence of the Queen Dowager, with whom, at one or other of her jointure houses of Chelsea or Hanworth, she usually made her abode. By this means it happened that after the Queen's remarriage she found herself domesticated under the roof of the Lord Admiral, and in this situation she had soon the misfortune to become an object of his marked attention. What were, at this particular period, Seymour's designs upon the Princess is uncertain, but it afterwards appeared from the testimony of eyewitnesses that neither respect for her exalted rank, nor a sense of the high responsibility attached to the character of a guardian with which circumstances invested him, had proved sufficient to restrain him from freedoms of behaviour towards her, which no reasonable allowance for the comparative grossness of the age can reduce within the limits of propriety or decorum. We learn that, on some occasions at least, she endeavoured to repel his presumption by such expedients as her youthful inexperience suggested, but her governess and attendants, gained over or intimidated, were guilty of a treacherous or cowardly neglect of duty, and the Queen herself appears to have been very deficient in delicacy and caution till circumstances arose which suddenly excited her jealousy. A violent scene then took place between the royal stepmother and stepdaughter, which ended, fortunately for the peace and honour of Elizabeth, 
in an immediate and final separation. There is no ground whatever to credit the popular rumour that the Queen, who died in childbed soon after this affair, was poisoned by the Admiral, but there is sufficient proof that he was a harsh and jealous husband, and he did not probably at this juncture regard as unpropitious on the whole an event which enabled him to aspire to the hand of Elizabeth, though other and more intricate designs were at the same time hatching in his busy brain, to which his state of a widower seemed at first to oppose some serious obstacles. Lady Jane Grey, eldest daughter of the Marchioness of Dorset, who had been placed immediately after the two princesses in order of succession, had also resided in the house of the Lord Admiral during the lifetime of the Queen Dowager, and he was anxious still to retain in his hands a pledge of such importance. To the applications of the Marquis and Marchioness for her return, he pleaded that the young lady would be as secure under the superintendence of his mother, whom he had invited to reside in his house, as formerly under that of the Queen, and that a mark of the esteem of friends whom he so highly valued would in this season of his affliction be doubly precious to him. He caused a secret agent to insinuate to the weak Marquis that if the Lady Jane remained under his roof it might eventually be in his power to marry her to the young King. And finally, as the most satisfactory proof of the sincerity of his professions of regard, he advanced to this illustrious peer the sum of five hundred pounds in ready money, requiring no other security for its repayment than the person of his fair guest or hostage. Such eloquence proved irresistible. Lady Jane was suffered to remain under this very singular and improper protection, and report for some time vibrated between the sister and the cousin of the king as the real object of the admiral's matrimonial projects. But in his own mind there appears to have been no hesitation between them. The residence of Lady Jane in his house was no otherwise of importance to him than as it contributed to ensure to him the support of her father, and as it enabled him to counteract a favourite scheme of the protectors, or rather of his duchesses, for marrying her to their eldest son. With Elizabeth, on the contrary, he certainly aimed at the closest of all connections, and he was intent on improving by every means the impression which his dangerous powers of insinuation had already made on her inexperienced heart. Mrs. Ashley, her governess, he had long since secured in his interests. His next step was to gain one Perry, her cofferer, and through these agents he proposed to open a direct correspondence with herself. His designs prospered for some time according to his desires and though it seems never to have been exactly known except to the parties themselves what degree of secret intelligence elizabeth maintained with her suitor it cannot be doubted that she betrayed towards him sentiments sufficiently favourable to render the difficulty of obtaining that consent of the royal executors which the law required the principal obstacle in his own opinion to the accomplishment of his wishes it was one however which appeared absolutely insuperable so long as his brother continued to preside over the administration with authority not to be resisted and despair of gaining his object by fair and peaceful means, soon suggested to the admiral further measures of a dark and dangerous character. By the whole order of nobility, the protector, who affected the love of the commons, was envied and hated, but his brother, on the contrary, had cultivated their friendship with assiduity and success, and he now took opportunities of emphatically recommending it to his principal adherents, the Marquis of Northampton, late Earl of Essex, the Marquis of Dorset, the Earl of Rutland, and others, to go into their counties and, quote, make all the strength, end quote, there which they could. He boasted of the command of men which he derived from his office of High Admiral, provided a large quantity of arms for his followers, and gained over the master of Bristol Mint to take measures for supplying him, on any sudden emergency, with a large sum of money. He likewise opened a secret correspondence with the young king, and endeavoured by many accusations, true or false, to render odious the government of his brother. 
but happily those turbulent dispositions and inordinate desires which prompt men to form plots dangerous to the peace and welfare of a community are rarely found to coexist with the sagacity and prudence necessary to conduct them to a successful issue and to this remark the admiral was not destined to afford an exception though he ought to have been perfectly aware that his late attempt had rendered him an object of the strongest suspicion to his brother and that he was surrounded by his spies such was the violence and presumption of his temper that he could not restrain himself from throwing out vaunts and menaces which served to put his enemies on the track of the most important discoveries and in the midst of vain schemes and flattering anticipations he was surprised on the sudden by a warrant for his committal to the tower his principal agents were also seized and compelled to give evidence before the council still the protector seemed reluctant to proceed to extremities against his brother but his own impetuous temper and the ill offices of the earl of warwick conspired to urge on his fate far from submitting himself as before to the indulgence of the protector and seeking to disarm his indignation by promises and entreaties seymour now stood as it were at bay and boldly demanded a fair and equal trial the birthright of englishmen but this was a boon which it was esteemed on several accounts inexpedient if not dangerous to grant no overt act of treason could be proved against him circumstances might come out which would compromise the young king himself whom a strong dislike of the restraint in which he was held by his elder uncle had thrown pretty decidedly into the party of the younger the name of the lady elizabeth was implicated in the transaction further than it was delicate to declare an acquittal which the far extended influence of the lord admiral over all classes of men rendered by no means impossible would probably be the ruin of the protector and in the end it was decided to proceed against him by the arbitrary and odious method of attainder several of those peers on whose support he had placed the firmest reliance rose voluntarily in their places and betrayed the designs which he had confided to them the depositions before the council were declared sufficient ground for his condemnation and in spite of the opposition of some spirited and upright members of the house of commons a sentence was pronounced in obedience to which in march fifteen forty nine he was conducted to the scaffold the timely removal of this bad and dangerous man however illegal and unwarrantable the means by which he was accomplished deserves to be regarded as the first of those signal escapes with which the life of elizabeth so remarkably abounds her attachment for seymour certainly the earliest was perhaps also the strongest impression of the tender kind which her heart was destined to receive and though there may be a probability that in this as in subsequent instances where her inclination seemed most to favour the wishes of her suitors her characteristic caution would have interfered to withhold her from an irrevocable engagement it might not much longer have been in her power to recede with honour or even if the designs of seymour had prospered with safety the original pieces relative to this affair have fortunately been preserved and furnish some very remarkable traits of the early character of elizabeth and of the behaviour of those about her the confessions of mrs ashley and parry before the privy council contain all that is known of the conduct of the admiral towards their lady during the lifetime of the queen they seem to cast upon mrs ashley the double imputation of having suffered such behaviour to pass before her eyes as she ought not to have endured for a moment and of having needlessly disclosed to parry particulars respecting it which reflected the utmost disgrace both on herself the admiral and her pupil yet we know that elizabeth so far from resenting anything that mrs ashley had either done or confessed continued to love and favour her in the highest degree and after her accession promoted her husband to a considerable office a circumstance which affords ground for suspicion that some important secrets were in her possession respecting later transactions between the princess and seymour which she had faithfully kept it should also be observed in palliation of the liberties which she accused the admiral of allowing to himself and the princess of enduring 
that the period of Elizabeth's life to which these particulars relate was only her fourteenth year. We are told that she refused permission to the admiral to visit her after he became a widower, on account of the general report that she was likely to become his wife, and not the slightest trace was at this time found of any correspondence between them, though Harrington afterwards underwent an imprisonment for having delivered to her a letter from the admiral. Yet it is stated that the partiality of the young princess betrayed itself by many involuntary tokens to those around her, who were thus encouraged to entertain her with accounts of the admiral's attachment, and to inquire whether, if the consent of the council could be obtained, she would consent to admit his addresses. The admiral is represented to have proceeded with caution equal to her own. Anxious to ascertain her sentiments, earnestly desirous to accomplish so splendid a union, but fully sensible of the inutility, as well as danger of a clandestine connection, he may be thought, rather, to have regarded her hand as the recompense which awaited the success of all his other plans of ambition, than as the means of obtaining that success. And it seemed to have been only by distant hints through the agents whom he trusted that he had ventured as yet to intimate to her his views and wishes. But it is probable that much of the truth was by these agents suppressed. The protector, rather, as it seems, with the desire of criminating his brother than of clearing the princess, sent Sir Robert Turret to her residence at Hatfield empowered to examine her on the whole matter, and his letters to his employer inform us of many particulars. When, by the base expedient of a counterfeit letter, he had brought her to believe that both Mrs. Ashley and Perry were committed to the tower, quote, her grace was, as he expresses it, marvellously abashed, and did weep very tenderly a long time, demanding whether they had confessed anything or not, end quote. Soon after, sending for him, she related several circumstances which she said she had forgotten to mention when the master of the household and master Denny came from the protector to examine her. Quote, after all this, adds he, I did require her to consider her honour and the peril that might ensue, for she was but a subject. And I further declared what a woman Mrs. Ashley was, with a long circumstance, saying that if she would open all things herself, that all the evil and shame should be ascribed to them, and her youth considered both with the king's majesty, your grace, and the whole council. But in no way she will not confess any practice by Mrs. Ashley or the cofferer concerning my lord admiral. And yet I do see it in her face that she is guilty, and do perceive as yet that she will abide the storms or she accuse Mrs. Ashley. Upon sudden news that my lord great master and master Denny was arrived at the gate, the cofferer went hastily to his chamber, and said to my lady his wife, I would I had never been born, for I am undone, and wrung his hands, and cast away his chain from his neck, and his rings from his fingers. This is confessed by his own servant, and there is diverse witnesses of the same. The following day Turret writes that all he has yet gotten from the princess was by gentle persuasion, whereby he began to grow with her in credit, quote, for I do assure your grace she hath a good wit, and nothing is gotten off her but by great policy. A few days after, he expresses to the protector his opinion that there had been some secret promise between the princess, Mrs. Ashley, and the cofferer, never to confess till death, quote, and if it be so, he observes, it will never be gotten out of her but either by the king's majesty or else by your grace, end quote. On another occasion, he confirms this idea by stating that he had tried her with false intelligence of Perry's having confessed, on which she called him, quote, false wretch, end quote and said that it was a great matter for him to make such a promise and break it. He notices the exact agreement between the princess and the other two in all their statements, but represents it as a proof that, quote, they had set the knot before, end quote. It appears on the whole that Sir Robert, with all his pains, was not able to elicit a single fact of decisive importance, but probably there was somewhat more in the matter than we find acknowledged in a letter from Elizabeth herself to the protector. 
She here states that she did indeed send her cofferer to speak with the Lord Admiral, but on no other business than to recommend to him one of her chaplains, and to request him to use his interest that she might have Durham Place for her townhouse, that Perry on his return informed her that the Admiral said she could not have Durham Place, which was wanted for a mint, but offered her his own house for the time of her being in London, and that Perry then inquired of her whether, if the council would consent to her marrying the Admiral, she would herself be willing that she refused to answer this question, requiring to know who bade him ask it. He said no one, but from the admiral's inquiries what she spent in her house, and whether she had gotten her patents for certain lands signed, and other questions of a similar nature, he thought, quote, that he was given that way rather than otherwise, end quote. She explicitly denies that her governess ever advised her to marry the admiral without the consent of the council, but relates with great apparent ingenuousness the hints which Mrs. Ashley had thrown out of his attachment to her, and the artful attempts which she had made to discover how her pupil stood affected towards such a connection. The letter concludes with the following wise and spirited assertion of herself, quote, Master Turret and others have told me that there goeth rumours abroad, which be greatly both against my honour and honesty, which above all things I esteem, which be these, that I am in the tower, and with child by my Lord Admiral." My lord, these are shameful slanders, for the which, besides the desire I have to see the king's majesty, I shall most humbly desire your lordship that I may come to the court after your first determination, that I may show myself there as I am." That the cofferer had repeated his visits to the admiral oftener than was at first acknowledged either by his lady or himself, a confession afterwards addressed by Elizabeth to the protector, seems to show. But even with this confession, Turret declares himself unsatisfied. End of section 5